and letting those patients know it is okay to speak up. How can we make it better for you? If we don't know as providers or the leadership organizations are not informed, they can't make it better. So when patients receive those surveys in the, on their email, please complete the survey so that we as an institution can make this a better experience for you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Epps. Dr. Epps is an adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner, holistic empowerment mentor, and burnout expert. Today in the cafe, she shares with us her passion for nursing, the importance of having an advanced care directive, what patients need to know in order to advocate for themselves, the value of speaking up when there's a problem, and so much more. Let's get to the episode. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? I am Stephanie Epps. I am a wife, a mother, a nurse practitioner, and a small business owner. I own a yoga studio, Indigo Yoga in Locust Grove, Georgia. I have been a nurse practitioner for seven years, and I've been a nurse for 12 years. I enjoy taking care of patients, empowering patients and women to live their best life. What inspired you to get into nursing, Stephanie? I have always wanted to be a healthcare provider as a small child. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. However, that was not my ministry, small children. That's not my calling. They are wonderful, but that's not my calling. I always wanted to help people and allow people to just be well and how I could contribute to that. So throughout undergrad, I initially was double majoring in biology and marketing. However, the advisor stated that one could not pursue both and be successful. So I ultimately transitioned to nursing. And I'm so excited that I chose to be a nurse rather than a physician. Although I do have my doctorate, I'm happy not to be an MD. I love being a nurse. I love being a nurse practitioner, being able to go the caring model. That's the nursing model is caring rather than the medical model. As a nurse practitioner, of course, through the educational program, it is more of a medical model, which we do incorporate the caring model as well. So I enjoy both. I have patients that often say, I'm so glad that you're my nurse practitioner. I love seeing you in clinic. You listen to me, you take time, you care, you ask about my family. So I enjoy it. Yeah. What is the difference between medical model and caring model? Medical model is based off of anatomy, physiology, assess, diagnose, treat. Caring model is holistic. So physicians who are DOs, they are more so caring and medical combined. So we're looking at the whole person, not so much, why are they here? What are we going to do for them? And let's get them out. Thanks for explaining that. What types of nursing have you done? As a registered nurse, I have always worked in critical care. So medical, surgical, ICU, CDICU, neurotrauma, ICU. I also worked, so intermediate care as well. I have not worked as uh, med surge, so medical surgical nursing, I have not done that. All of my nursing has been in critical care. As a nurse practitioner, I have worked as a hospitalist 
as a hospice nurse practitioner and as a surgical nurse practitioner. So I work in neurosurgery. I've been in neurosurgery for a while, several years now. What is a hospitalist? A hospitalist is the physician, nurse practitioner, or PA who you will see throughout your your care. So you get admitted to the hospital from the ER or another facility they transfer you in, and they manage your overall care throughout your stay in the hospital. So if you would need a referral for a cardiologist, the physician, MD, or PA will put in the referral for that specific service. So hospitalist manages the overall care of the patient during their hospital stay. Hospitalists do not see patients outside of the facility unless they have their own practice and they do a little bit of both outpatient and inpatient. Do you have a favorite of the types of nursing that you've done? Critical care is my favorite. I really enjoy the intensity of critical care. Patients are very, very ill and it's a a fast paced environment. It requires a lot of teamwork. I really enjoy critical care. As a nurse practitioner, hospice I really enjoyed and neurosurgery. I've been in neurosurgery since 2015. Yes. Hospice and neurosurgery have been my favorites. And I've always enjoyed neuro. My sister has MS. And I think that may be why I like neuro. So in your years of experience, what do you think patients need to know in order to advocate for themselves better? I think patients need to know that it's okay to ask questions. Mm -hmm. In my experience, I have found that older patients and indigent populations do not ask questions. Frequently, if the provider says, this is what we're doing, this is the plan of action, whether it be we're starting you on an antihypertensive, you need surgery, the patient frequently says, okay. And as a provider, going back to talk to the patient about the medication, have they been compliant with the antihypertensive? Have they gone to their post-operative physical therapy? Frequently, patients say, I didn't know I needed to take the antihypertensive, for example, every day, or I didn't know I needed to call physical therapy to schedule my appointment. I didn't know they're not informed. So I think empowering our patients to ask questions and be comfortable asking questions so that they can advocate for themselves is vital for them to flourish and to improve patient overall outcomes. How do you think we can do that? Because I know like some people I talk to, they say, well, I don't want to make it seem like I don't trust them or I'm scared to ask because, you know, well, they do know more than I do. You know, like how, how can we make people more comfortable? As a provider, we need to tell the patient, you can ask me questions. You can ask other providers questions. It's okay to get a second opinion. And sometimes patients are surprised and they, they exhale like this big inhale. And, it's, and you can tell they just immediately feel comfortable. Also, sitting down with the patients, getting eye level versus the provider standing tall patient sitting down in more of a superior role patients are less likely to feel comfortable to ask questions. So treating people like human beings versus an assembly line or I'm the physician, I'm the nurse practitioner, you're the patient, you listen to me. Because ultimately, it's a partnership. Healthcare now is interdisciplinary. So 
Of course, you have your physician, your NP, your PA, you have physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. We have all of the teams and the patient is the one that's most important. We as providers are there for the patient and the patient needs to know what's going on and why. So I think informing the patient that it's okay to ask questions, sitting eye level and asking the patient, what questions do you have for me? And using everyday terminology, less medical terminology, explaining in a comfortable manner so the patients understand. For example, using subarachnoid hemorrhage. A patient doesn't know what a subarachnoid hemorrhage is, but if you say a brain bleed, they understand blood on the brain, for example. Just using everyday terminology, medical terminology for the average person does not make sense. They don't process it. They don't feel comfortable. When you use larger terminology, they're not going to ask questions. I love it. Speaking my language. What are some of your top recommendations that you give to family or friends or that you even use yourself when you are navigating healthcare? It depends on what we're discussing. For example, in my practice, we're in neurosurgery. Patients are there for brain or spinal injuries, disease processes. I will frequently give them pamphlets to read at home or on my smart device. I'll pull up like apps or uh, websites that we can read over together in person, or I can write it down on a piece of paper for them to take home. And I will give our office number, our staff number and name so that the patients can call back and ask any questions that they have. So that's what I like to do, be able to give something tangible to the patient before they leave versus we had a discussion, particularly if it is a new diagnosis that can completely change their life, such as a brain tumor, did they process what was stated? Did the person come alone? And then if we can follow up with that patient, whether it's somebody from our office, such as myself, one of the other NPs or PAs, or one of our MAs, to make sure that the patient is understanding and they are following up and being sure that we are making those referrals and to, for example, the brain tumor, to oncology, and ensure that the patient does get scheduled, following up and explaining why they go to oncology. With the brain tumor example, patients will ask, what medications are they going to prescribe? Am I going to have to have radiation? And we don't prescribe oncology medications. So that's something that we we mention up front. The oncologist manages that. However, they may add these different treatment options for you in alignment with our service if you need to have operative intervention, as well as you may need to have radiation therapy. That's a lot of information for one to process. So being able to communicate and follow up is very important and having that team approach. Sounds lovely. You sound really caring, Stephanie. I'm enjoying listening to you. Well, thank you. I love patient care. I love my patients. How do you recommend patients handle it when they think they're not getting adequate care? Whether I want to hear it, whether the physician wants to hear it, whether or not the hospital administrator wants to hear it, the patient has to speak up. We have to advocate for ourselves as people inside healthcare and outside healthcare. And providers need to tell the patient, it's okay, tell us what happened. I can give a overall example, had a patient 
a few weeks back who came into the office postoperatively and shared their inpatient experience was poor. I won't go into the details of why it was poor, but the patient was frustrated. They were elevating their voice, not because of the treatment that the neurosurgical team provided, but because of their inpatient experience. So I then asked the patient and their family was present as well, were you able to speak with the charge nurse? Were you able to speak with the floor nursing manager? Did they listen to what you stated? And so we kind of went from there going through that chain of command and being able to know that they can't elevate their concerns, even to the CEO and CNO of the organization, that they have the right to do that. Patients don't know that. For example, patients have to use the bedpan. I'm going to just be real here. Patients that are bedbound have to use a bedpan. And sometimes there is shortage on the floor. It's nursing, CNAs, the techs, and the patient has been on the bedpan for a while. That's unacceptable. That can lead to bed sores. And from Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement, hospital-acquired bed sores are not reimbursable. Health institutions, they care about that, right? So which means that the money that a facility receives or does not receive correlates with patient care. So how can we have enough staff to ensure that all the patient's needs are met? Are we able to call people in if they're available? Are we able to adjust staffing on other floors if a floor is overstaffed and another floor is understaffed so that those patients can have their needs met? It's a team approach and letting those patients know it is okay to speak up. How can we make it better for you? If we don't know as providers or the leadership organizations are not informed, they can't make it better. So when patients receive those surveys in the, on their email, please complete the survey so that we as an institution can make this a better experience for you. I love that. I've actually had somebody say, but yeah, I don't want to say anything though, because what happens if I have to go back and like deal with nurse Stephanie and she's going to be upset because I told somebody that we didn't have a good interaction. How do you respond to that? I tell that patient, it is okay. You have to speak up for yourself. Nurse Stephanie, Nurse John, that day may have been a rough day for them. Tomorrow will hopefully be better, but you have to speak your truth so that you can be well taken care of. If no one knows, how can it get better? And I try to use examples outside of the healthcare system because it makes sense. For example, in our everyday life, we have to wash dishes, right? Whether you hand wash your dishes or use a dishwasher. Dishes don't get washed. If your son or partner doesn't wash the dishes, you're not going to have anything to eat off of. That's going to lead to bacteria in your home, right? So just an example, speak up to your son, your partner, and say, you need to wash dishes so that we can have clean tools and so we can cook and eat our food. It makes sense. Oh, yeah, that does make sense. Like, just keep just giving basic examples so they understand. You know, just like you'll tell your partner, I need your help around the house. Nurse Stephanie, I need this so I can get better. And Nurse Stephanie may say, 
Thank you for sharing with me. Let me get my teammate in here so that we can improve this scenario for you. I know patients are nervous and apprehensive because it is their health care and they have to go back to that facility. But people can't change if they don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's in a hospital setting, in a, in a doctor's office setting, if it's at home. If you don't tell, it can't get better. If you don't tell, it can't get better. Are there any myths or misconceptions you'd like to dispel about navigating healthcare? Thought that came up for me was that providers don't care about their patients and it's all about the money, which is not true. Well, for me and my friends and coworkers in healthcare, that's not true. We care about our patients. We want you to do well. And it's not always about finances. We have to find a way to be able to support our patients, to empower our patients, to be able to live life on purpose, to be well, be healthy, and realize that they are in control. Because ultimately, it's you, the patient. It's about you. The patient allows me and other providers to be a part of their journey. And at any point you can say, I would like to cease having a relationship with you as my provider. I would like to see someone else and that's okay. And as a provider, I am happy to refer you to someone else that can better meet your needs. And as far as finances go, healthcare is a business. It is, it's not free, whether we're here in the States and you have private insurance or not, or whether you're in um, Canada or another country where government subsidizes, someone has to pay the providers to take care of you. Someone has to pay for those MRI scans, the CT scans, the x-rays. It is life, but that's not what it's about. My experience, if a person is unable to pay, we try to find resources so that they can be able to get what they need or if it's their medications, or if there's a payment plan process that they can participate in. The prescription cards, some medications are $300 a month. Average person cannot afford that. So how can we get those medications to those patients that need them? We have to find a way. Also, in regards to caring about our patients, what options can we offer our patients that are empowering and affordable and not always assuming that the first thing we need to do is place a person on a medication. If your blood pressure is 190 over 70, that's a completely different story. But if you're 140 over 70, what can the patient do in their life to improve their outcome? And let's care. Let's be holistic. Think about our patient. So We'll say, John, John, your blood pressure has been 140 over 70 the last couple of visits. What have you been doing at home? How's your work environment? Are you feeling stressed? Are you overwhelmed? Tell me about your diet. Little things like that. And John can then share. Yes, I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm eating fast food. I've gained about 15 pounds. And we can talk about that. Is it perhaps, John, are you able to implement a walking program a couple of days a week? Are you able to meal prep? Little things that the patient can do themselves so they know that we care 
healthy, it's healthier for them. And in the long run, it's going to be cheaper and they will be in control of their own well-being, their own outcomes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Such a fantastic example. So I see too that Stephanie, that you mentioned that you do hospice or you've done hospice care. In your experience, are there things that patients have overlooked when it comes to hospice or end-of-life planning that you think more people should be thinking about ahead of time? Yes. I think that everyone should have advanced directives and a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Those are free in the state of Georgia. I'm not sure about all states. I think most states it is free. You can go to a website and it can be completed there or most hospital organizations will help you complete it while you're a patient. Everybody needs to have a durable power for healthcare. I'm give another example. I'm married. Love my husband. I love my husband. He is a great man and he knows what my wishes are. If I were to become, I have a traumatic accident, having the conversation with the providers is my wife showing improvement? Is she going to get well? Is this going to be a long outcome? Is she most likely going to be in a vegetated state on the ventilator at a nursing home? For me, I don't want that for myself. And I have that on documentation so that my husband may want to keep me forever and us to be together. He visit me in the nursing home. However, that's not how I want to live my life. So for me to be able to speak for myself when I cannot, I have my paperwork. My husband knows my wishes, right? So we're going to go by that paperwork, okay? I think as far as hospice goes, it's important for people to know hospice and palliative care. And with hospice, people who have acute and chronic disease processes who most likely are not going to improve and they're declining and they're thought to, they will not survive longer than six months. Hospice is a great avenue to pursue and patients don't always die on hospice because of the medications that they have access to, the treatments. Some people come off of hospice and they're getting well. And palliative care, pain management, disease management, palliative does not always mean end of life. So people understanding the difference between the two, there's palliative pain control. So people that have uh, cancer, that have a lot of pain, palliative is able to help them with that. So being aware is very important. Also, I think as far as hospice goes, it is important for patients and their families who intend to sign on to be hospice ready, that they understand that if one goes to the hospital, that means that their hospice agreement is no longer in place. Mm. Patients often don't realize that if an acute process happens, they are to call their hospice case manager rather than go to the hospital. Stephanie, can you, you just used the word acute. Can you tell us what that means? What- acute means an immediate symptom diagnosis has happened, whether you're vomiting or you cut your hand versus chronic is long standing. It's been going on for a long time. Example, someone has had back pain for eight years 
or someone has hypertension, but they could have an acute on chronic crisis where they have hypertension, but now there's been a spike, a big elevation in the blood pressure. So they're seeking treatment for that. The directives that you've mentioned, I think you mentioned two of them. Is there a difference between the two? What's the key difference between them? So uh, durable power of attorney for healthcare is who you will appoint to make decisions for you when you cannot speak for yourself. And your advanced directives also includes what your wishes are. These choices that individuals would like to have for their healthcare if they become incapacitated. Yes, I want to be intubated. Yes, I would like a tracheostomy. Yes, I would like a feeding tube. Or if you would like comfort measures only, the patient decides when they're healthy, what measures they would like to sustain their life. Tell me though, how old do I need to be to have this? Should I wait until I'm 65? Do I need it at 20? Is there a good age? At 18, you're an adult. You make legal decisions for yourself. You never know what's going to happen. When we're young, we're 18, 25, even up into our 30s, we're feeling good. We're on top of the world. We're working and life is so great. But guess what? Tragedy happens at any age. So what do you want when you can't speak for yourself? Who do you want to speak for you? when you can't speak for yourself, right? You can be married. If you're married, your legal next of kin is your spouse. If you do not have a durable power of eternity for healthcare, your spouse makes your decisions for you. However, you can be married and have a durable power of eternity for healthcare that allows your mother, your best friend to make those choices for you. And that's okay. I recommend letting your partner know that you have decided that your mother will make your medical decisions. That way it mitigates any type of negativity, any type of uh, aggression that could happen related to your inability to speak for yourself. But yet you have chosen your mother to speak for you rather than your husband. In the age, you need to start immediately. Oftentimes, younger people We're the ones skydiving and on the motorcycles and doing all the fun sports, right? Trauma happens. Things happen. We're not promised tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We have to live each day to its fullest and be prepared. When you're at 65 and 70, you definitely still need durable power of attorney for healthcare. If not, you're married, your partner makes a decision, right? If you're not married and you have multiple children, those multiple children have to come together to an agreement about what is going to be done for your health care. It's not one child, it's multiple. That's actually interesting because how would you know as the provider? You know, let's say I live here in this city. I've got five children. I've only got one in town, the other four, wherever they are. That one child could potentially handle the whole situation and you all never know that I had four more. We have to ask. And usually people are honest. However, as a healthcare provider, there's no way that we can go to Social Security 
and make all these telephone calls to ensure that this is a Uh one child family. Usually the family member of the child states that I have other siblings that I want to tell about what's going on. I want to inform them. We want to make a family decision and being able to have the the conversation to sit down in person to speak about, about what's going on with the parent or to have a teleconference. There are some family members who could be overseas and throughout the United States or other places, and they can't immediately come. So having that conversation, whether it's on the telephone, in person, so that everyone can be on the same page. And as a healthcare provider, not pushing the family to make a decision right away, giving families the information that they need to make an informed decision while including the wishes of the patient, okay? Most family members, in my experience, want to honor the wishes of their loved ones, but it's not always that case. Having the documentation, the paperwork is important from 18 to 98. Yeah, I agree. Especially if it's free, just go on and do it. Do you have, throughout your years, an experience that stands out, either because it was super positive Or because you thought, man, this really could have gone differently if people had just known or recognized ABC. I'll give a generalized example. In my practice, as I shared, we focus on brain and spinal disease processes and injuries. I've had patients in the past who experienced traumatic spine injuries Various examples, uh, motorcycle, car collision, falling off of a ladder, falling off of a building. Examples include, you know, those big hay bundles, these large hay bundles, having that fall on a patient, they fracture their Mm -hmm. spine. Patients who then, who've had a traumatic spine injury and they have lost the use of their legs or their arms, so they're paraplegic or quadriplegic. That is a devastating diagnosis, to go from being independent. And now one is unable to walk, one is unable to feed themselves, one could possibly be permanently required to have a tracheostomy for breathing. I'll give an example further from that, where we refer patients to long-term inpatient physical therapy. And of course, they were having physical therapy but also speaking with a therapist and psychotherapist to help with the mental disease process and depression that correlates with going along with, I'm unable to walk anymore. I've had patients who did the work. They felt depression. They understood the loss, but they stood the test of time. They did the work, the physical therapy, the intensive multiple hours throughout the day. You're paraplegic, came into the office, now you're walking. Like it, I'm thinking of a couple people right now and it blows my mind, blows my mind when patients say, this is not the end for me. They will do the work, being able to regain the strength of their arms and their legs. It doesn't happen for everybody. And I'm not saying that Physical therapy is the end-all, be-all to be able to return to walking again. But if patients advocate for themselves, if they show up in their health care, 
just like they should show up in their everyday life, transformation happens. Evolution, right? We got to do the work. And it just feels good. You, as a healthcare provider, I assisted in the surgery or I, if they were my, my consult in the ER to see this is where you were. This was your hospital course. I haven't seen you in months because you were at an intensive inpatient therapy at another hospital. You're following up. Oh my gosh. It's just a beautiful experience. And the patients are so overjoyed. So overjoyed. It's just beautiful. It's lovely. Just looking at you, it seems like you're getting emotional just thinking about it. I am. It's why we do what we do. Every patient doesn't have that outcome. Patients die. You do everything you can and they don't make it. And it's hard. Particularly, I can think of when I was a staff nurse, I had a coworker. I was, it was probably my first year of nursing. One of my good friends, she worked night shift and I worked day shift. And every day we worked, we had this patient, we traded back and forth, day shift, night shift, day shift, night shift. And for, bad, for lack of better terminology, circling the drain, CPR, chest compressions, trying to get her back and all of different medications, max on all these drips. And ultimately the patient doesn't make it. I think that may have been the per- first patient that I lost as a new nurse. It's devastating. You do all these things and you're hoping, you're praying with the family, trying to stand in the gap, explain things, and they still don't make it. But you do all you can. And you allow the patient's family to grieve, mm-hmm. not rushing them to leave the patient's side, being able to have that time with them. So it makes it better. And families are so thankful. It's important to have those experiences and connections and just to know that everyone involved really cared about your person. I'm thinking, Stephanie, back to the beginning of our conversation where you mentioned that you owned a yoga studio. And I'm smiling because your advisor told you that you couldn't do biology and marketing. (laughs) But in owning a yoga studio, you probably are doing a little marketing and promotion. So you were able to do both. You should call them and let them know. <laughs> but how, why, how did you get into yoga? Why did you start the studio? <laughs> I was an avid CrossFitter and runner. Marathons, ultra marathons, half marathons, lifting all the weights. And it was during a marathon that I tore my hamstring. Prior to that, I was doing some yoga intermittently. But it was when I tore my hamstring and I was unable to lift heavy weights, I couldn't run marathons, that I really delved deeper into the physical yoga practice, I will tell anybody, yoga helped me heal. I don't think I would be where I am today without it. It was definitely one of the modalities that I incorporated for my physical health. And as I delved deeper into the other aspects of yoga, I learned, I grew, I evolved. And as a person who identified as a physical person, working out, lifting the weights, and I wasn't able to do those things, it affected my mental health because I was a CrossFitter. I was a marathon. That was part of my identity. And to lose that, it's like, well, who am I now? What am I doing? I began to heal mentally as well to understand that I am more than 
a skill. I am more than physical action. Like who I am is my soul, who I show up as for people and for myself. And from there, I wanted to be able to share the practice of yoga with others. Yoga is life-changing, mind, body, spiritual health, which aligns with healthcare, holistic wellness, to be a good person inside and out and for other people. And it's just been wonderful to be able to share this practice with people here on the south side of Atlanta. Wonderful. And I know that you said that you survived physical, professional burnout and high functioning depression. What was the turning point for you there? Turning point. The turning point for me, honestly, was when my work life began to affect my marriage. And I love my husband. He is such a good man. Lord, thank you for him. But it's one thing when you're dealing with something and it just affects you. And you keep showing up, you're working all the hours, and you're having all of these emotions, all these feelings. You're not able to sleep well. You feel anxious all the time. You're not eating or you're overeating, hypersensitive, sometimes nausea, upset stomach. That's, that's affecting you, right? But when burnout, where you work yourself to the end, begins to translate to your relationship. What's important? Yes, I, Stephanie, I am important, but also my marriage. My husband's great. He's so supportive. Something's got to change. I want to be here for me. I want to be here for my spouse. I want to be here for my daughter. I refuse to allow any job to take me there again. It's not worth it. I think I said this before. Maybe, maybe I didn't, but we get one life, Nikita. How are we going to live it? Life is about more than working 80 hours a week. Because when you leave that job, they're going to replace you, right? If you get sick at work, they're going to send you flowers and check in. But somebody's going to do your job while you're out. And if you don't come back, someone's going to take your office. And maybe they'll say, oh, he or she was so great. But eventually your name will stop coming up. So what's important to you? How do you want to live your life? Burnout? It's a no for me. I don't want to be depressed and sad and still trying to show up. With high-functioning depression, you're sad inside, but people on the outside don't know it because you're able to function. You're working hard, but inside you're crying. You're in a dark space. You're not sleeping. It's not healthy. And sometimes people don't recognize high-functioning depression because you're not lying in bed crying. You're able to go to work. So it can, it can appear that you're fine when you're not. So when you recognize these symptoms in yourself, immediately seek help. As a woman of color, I started therapy last year. Thank you, God, for that too. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I told my therapist, don't fire me. I need you. You help me. <laughs> She jokes about it with me, but as a person of color, just recently, I believe in like the last five, maybe 10 years, it's been more comfortable to talk about therapy and mental health and getting treatment. It's usually a taboo topic. Why is that? It shouldn't be. Your mental health is just as important, if not more important, than your physical health. Because when you can't show up for your mental health, physical health is going to decline as well. 
it all goes hand in hand. Anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. Those are just diagnoses, disease processes, just like hypertension, diabetes mellitus. They're all disease processes. We, we assess, we diagnose, come with a treatment plan. And it's okay. I think we need to continue this conversation, Stephanie, because this sounds like it would be an amazing follow-up to our discussion today. But as we close, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? For the patients and the healthcare providers who are listening today, patients, advocate for yourself. Speak your truth. Ask questions. Healthcare providers, you also should advocate for your patients. Take the time. Listen. Patients' experiences are valid. How can you be better for your patients to help them improve their outcomes? Thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe, Stephanie. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you heard something useful on today's episode, please share it with a friend. For more information about Stephanie, please check the show notes. See you in the cafe next time. Bye.